1: Good morning, everyone. It is the 15th of March, and this is Mornings with Carmen. Of course, you can probably tell from the sound of my voice that this is actually mornings without Carmen here this morning. I'm Peter Capster filling in for today as Carmen is getting a good, well-needed break of a couple of days. I'll be filling in tomorrow for her as well. And as always, delighted to be joined by Paul Perot in studio. Good morning, Paul. Good
0: morning. Even though you're not in studio, we had to use a little uh, technology to get you we, on today.
1: We did have a little technology, I'm sure, like many of us. And we're going to talk about COVID here in just a minute with Dr. Zach Jenkins. But like many of us, sometimes we get the news that somebody that we have been close to has tested positive. I don't have somebody, I don't have a positive test from a colleague of mine just yet, but he did text me yesterday and say that he lost his sense of taste and sense of smell, which is one of those hallmarks of COVID, right? Yep, it is. So It is indeed. That we thought so, it would be better that you stay where you're at. I'll be in the studio and yeah. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. But, but both of us are apparently going to get hit as well as much of the Midwest by this crippling what's described as a historic winter storm that was dumping up to four feet of snow in the Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, Nebraska area. Oklahoma, Missouri, and Arkansas are going to get heavy rains and high winds, possible tornadoes. And a lot of people, we have listeners, of course, all over the country, we have a pretty high concentration in the Midwest as well. So, Paul, I'm assuming that people in Iowa, the Dakotas, Wisconsin, we're all going to be impacted to some level today. Yep.
0: Basically, if you're north of Des Moines, south of the Twin Cities, yuck. uh, Yeah, Sioux Falls is getting hit pretty hard. Southern Minnesota, northern Iowa getting hit hard. Now, the south metro could get a little of the run Some of the counties are under a winter weather advisory on the south metro of the Twin Cities. Otherwise, yeah, I could see just kind of a slushy, slushy day in the metro.
1: Yeah, it's going to have to be a quick day for snowmen, though. This time of year, the snow tends to melt uh, <laughs> no. relatively quickly. So get out there and get those those three boulders going relatively quick, because I bet it'll be gone tomorrow uh, at this point. Well, delighted to be again with all of you. And I know we've got a big first hour ahead. And in, in the first half of this hour, regular contributor Dr. Zach Jenkins is going to join us. And we do have a lot of COVID headlines to cover. It's pretty interesting to see how different states are handling the the various restriction levels. And of course, we have some third waves happening over in Europe, too, and see what we We might be able to learn from them about what might be coming our direction or not and how it's different in the United States than it is in Europe. That'll be the first half an hour of this opening hour. And in the second hour, we, (laughs) in the second uh, half of this hour, we'll be joined by Lee Camp. And he's a theologian from Litskin University, wrote a great book called The Scandalous Witness. And I'm very much looking forward to talking with Lee Camp about a way to carve out space as believers in the realm of politics. He has a very interesting take on that. So lots to come here on hour one on mornings without Carmen. Again, I'm Peter Kapsner hosting for the day. Hey, 98.6. It's
0: good to have you back again. Oh, Hey,
1: Welcome back. Delighted to be joined by Zach Jenkins of Cedarville University this morning. He is somebody who joins the show regularly to talk a bit about different dimensions of COVID. He's an epidemiologist. Good morning, Zach. Good morning. How are you? Well, I'm doing well. I noticed that Paul played a little bit of uh, an underbed of the Frozen movie, the famous song, Do You Want to Build a Snowman, from Anna and Elsa. I'm wondering, are, are you a Disney guy, Zach? Because I, I got really distracted. <laughs> but I wanted to just uh, you know, line up a few Disney
2: movies again on Disney+. Plus. Are you a Disney guy? Well, whether or not I am, uh, I don't know if I have much of a choice with the little girl running around. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I, she tends I to bet put Frozen not. on.
1: Uh, no, it's it's uh, pretty regularly playing in the background of our home as well. Well, glad to have you with us. It seems like there is any number of headlines we could cover on a daily basis related to COVID. Things do change, and I guess we potentially have some what, – what some could – that some people would consider to be good news this morning in that states are increasingly feeling the freedom to dial back some level of the restrictions and staying out of the politics of whether there should be masks or not masks and all of that. It, it just generally speaking, Zach, is pretty good news that states are feeling more comfortable with the level of COVID they're experiencing.
2: Yeah. And, and if you look at the numbers, we're, we're certainly on a good trajectory to kind of exit this whole COVID situation, at least at least the majority of it, if you think about that. I don't think that we're ever going to see COVID completely disappear. Um, it's probably going to be endemic where it circulates seasonally. but but certainly this pandemic, I think we're cer- we're certainly on that exit exit approach from it. One thing to kind of consider is how prevalent it is in the community. And so um, you know, in Ohio right now, we haven't necessarily lifted all those restrictions right now, but what we have is sort of a goal that the governor has set for the state. If we get our cases below a certain number per capita, Um, in other words, our prevalence is is lower, then everything goes away at once. Mm. And so we're seeing similar things across all these different states right now. And it really kind of speaks to the fact that we are exiting the pandemic.
1: And and with that, in terms of you talk about COVID being around, though, and I I think most of us are mindful of the fact that it isn't going to be eradicated maybe anytime soon, even with vaccination and some of the therapeutic interventions we're doing. But do, do Viruses like this, do we have enough history with them that they become maybe less virulent over time as well in some of the mutations? I I have heard mixed reviews on that. But give it a year, two, three years. What does COVID maybe look like in terms of its different strains?
2: So if we we do actually uh, achieve herd immunity, whatever that does look like, whether we're talking about um, the majority being through vaccination or through exposure, the virus will, will slow down in transmission in the community. And when that slows down in transmission, it actually reduces the amount of variants that are able to spin out. And so the good news is, um, at the least as far as this past week goes, we're at about 20% of the country that's been vaccinated. Um, certainly, we're going to have enough doses available by the end of the spring here to vaccinate at least every person that's interested in the United States. And we know some people are going to have this. Um, acquired through natural means as well. So we'll see a slowdown in transmission, which means we will have less problematic variants that can cause issues for us. And we have a lot of good news to talk about too when it comes to variants today as well.
1: Yeah, tell us a little bit more, because you you do hear these rumors or these uh, realities of the virus that also there's a variant from the UK or from Brazil or from South Africa, and there's mixed reviews, at least up front, about whether or not the vaccines are going to be effective against these viruses or whether they're going to be just worse for people who do get it in terms of viral load. But what are we noticing in terms of the variants right now?
2: So... It's projected in the U.S. right now that the U.K. variant is probably going to become the dominant strain here. And we do know that's more infectious when it comes to the other strains. We, we actually do have those here in the United States already, even though they're from Brazil and South Africa. They've been circulating here for a little bit of time. Um, what we're seeing with vaccines, at least as far as the data goes, we do see re- a reduction in efficacy, overall efficacy against all of them. Uh, probably most concerningly is against the South African variant, simply because uh, it doesn't seem to be, or the vaccines don't seem to protect as well against that compared to the other variants that are out there. Um, to that end, what what we're ha- what we're actually doing right now is a number of com- com- excuse me a number of companies are developing uh, boosters and multivalent vaccines to help combat these variants. So, Moderna just began a trial where they're starting to look at. Uh, multivalent vaccine, which includes the old strains and then these new strains that are circulating. And that the good news there is it's probably going to be conducted in a very short amount of time. They don't need as many patients to look at. So we'll have that data back relatively quickly. Um, and in their words, they're doing it out of a, quote, abundance of caution. And so what that means is, yeah, there's still some activity. It's not like it goes away completely. And the Pfizer data from South Africa... De- or excuse me, the Johnson Johnson data from South Africa definitely highlights that they they did have reduction activity, but their vaccine was still about fifty two percent effective in that variant.
1: So how does this work, Zach? When they are creating these booster shots for the variants, clearly it takes what seems to be quite a bit less time to produce a, a booster versus the original vaccine. Are they just simply doing some twist or some some tweaking of the existing vaccine so that it's more effective against a variant, or what is this process
2: like? So so we have a couple of things working for us. The, the first is the messenger RNA technology allows people to create changes more rapidly. So if these things are studied quickly here and the results do prove effective, they can turn this around much faster than we traditionally would be able to with other vaccine technologies. Um, the one thing that they're able to do, though, is we have the safety data and we have the efficacy data from the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines already. And we also have real-world efficacy data from Pfizer in particular. And so so we know that it's safe, it's effective already. So all they have to do is tweak it a little bit. And from an ethics perspective and from an effect perspective, when they're designing this study, it becomes much easier to conduct this than when they had to do the initial trial. So I believe Moderna is only looking at about 60 patients. They don't have to look at as many to show that it's effective. That's all they have to prove here.
1: Hmm. And I know we've been talking in my ethics course here at the University of Northwestern St. Paul about the ethics of vaccination. I know it's something that you've covered several different times related to the use of former, or at least stem cells that were derived from aborted fetal tissue. And can you just remind our listeners which of the vaccines are maybe more or less ethical related to that and and how these booster shots, these booster vaccines maybe relate to that ethics conversation as well?
2: Sure. So The Christian Medical and Dental Association, as well as uh, several other religious institutions, have taken a look at these vaccines. And and according to their ethicists, when when they looked at everything, probably of the bunch, Johnson & Johnson is probably the grayest area. And and it's the grayest area simply because while their vaccines don't contain any of those stem cells that were utilized, the stem cells that were were actually used to Create the vaccine. Does that make sense? So they had to. Yeah, does. Yep. Put things in the cells. The cells help generate the product that they're able to use then to make or to put into the vaccine. So that's what's happening there. Now, of course, no new uh, in sinful evil events have happened in, in doing that. Um, so some ethicists argue, well, maybe you're further enough away from that, or far enough away from that, where it's not problematic. When you look at uh, the other two vaccines, though, so the Moderna and the Pfizer, the only time stem cells were ever used was with a proof of concept of the technology back in the day. So it wasn't even related to the COVID vaccines we have right now. And they aren't actually used at all in creating these vaccines. So most ethicists feel that that's probably the least ethically complicated area. When you compare those, they believe the messenger RNA vaccines are probably the ethically cleanest of the bunch.
1: Zach, exactly, that's super helpful. I think I missed my calling. I you know, listening to you talk about this, it's it sounds like it must be fun to be an epidemiologist each morning. You wake up and just wonder about, about what infectious diseases you could study. What what do you do when you get up in the morning, Zach? <laughs> uh
2: so so I actually practice at a hospital. So when I when I get up I, I head into the hospital and I see my patients. <laughs>
1: Well, it's very helpful. We're going to take a short break, Zach. And I do want to ask you a bit about some of the potential controversy related to vaccines. It hasn't gone away. You've mentioned that maybe 20% of our population has been vaccinated. I think expectations are that people want to see up to 60 to 75% to achieve some level of herd immunity, maybe higher than that. But I'm wondering if we'll be able to, to work through some of the skepticism or if that skepticism itself is warranted when it comes to some of the reactions that we've seen, vaccines in pregnant women as well. So lots to come here next with Zach Jenkins from Cedar, Cedarville University. This is Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmela Burge. Like just for you, Zach Jenkins, just for you, a little bit more Disney this morning here.
2: Uh, my daughter would be singing and twirling right now.
1: <laughs> Indeed. I mean, that—that that is the song that defines the show. Well, great to have you again. There's lots to cover here related to the vaccines. And I know that President Biden has set a goal that all adults would be vaccinated by the 1st of May. And that's a pretty ambitious goal, Zach. Clearly, I think he knows that we're not going to be talking about all adults are vaccinated. But is he sort of pushing the idea that we really want to move towards herd immunity, even if we get to that 75 percent level or so?
2: I, I do believe that's what he's pushing right now. So he's at least proposing that we will have a dose available for every single American in the United States by May 1st. At least those, those that's what he shared publicly. Uh, so so the, it'll be there. Now, whether or not everyone gets one or decides to get one, I think will be a very different discussion.
1: It yeah, well, indeed. And I saw a headline this last week or so that we are stockpiling enough vaccines to have everybody vaccinated, as you referenced. Is there any concern that maybe in the stockpiling of vaccines that people that are in third world countries or maybe don't have the means or living in poverty will then have to wait that much longer while we have the stockpile for our own people? Or how, how do we understand the global ethics of the situation?
2: So so globally I think you're highlighting something very, very important. Um we will have things stockpiled potentially and there are a lot of countries that are probably being most uh impacted by COVID, although their numbers are lower. It's it's more deadly and more rampant some of those some of those different areas that don't have access to the level of care that we do. And so for that reason, I think what'll happen is a lot of that supply we have will be diverted elsewhere. Um there's a lot of discussion too right now that maybe a lot of these uh, first world nations that are kind of taking the majority of the vaccine supply, maybe they should start sharing some globally. Because it, the other thing to kind of consider, it, it's also benefiting each country to keep variants from circulating, um, to keep variant production down. So that's the other side of the argument as well. So it's good for the, those communities themselves, but it's good to keep the variants down for your own community.
1: Yeah, so even if somebody was not a believer who was other-centered and and willing to sacrifice for the sake of other people from just a pragmatic standpoint to stop the variants from spreading, to allow it to distribute, is that what I'm hearing you say?
2: That's exactly what I'm saying.
1: What are what are hospitals like in maybe the third world countries compared to first world countries, Zach, even the administration of vaccines? And if there are side effects, how equipped are they to be able to deal with it? I don't know if you can give us a little lens of how different the, the realities are globally in the practice of medicine.
2: So where I'm sitting right now in uh, southwest Ohio, I have about four or five hospitals within about a 30 minute drive. And if you compare where we're at right now, at least in my area, to parts of, let's say, Africa or or parts of South America, hospitals are sometimes multiple hours away, depending on where where people are living. A lot of villages are kind of secluded and uh, off the beaten track from those institutions. So it's a lot harder if you need access to some of that care, particularly if you have vulnerable individuals, um, to, to really get the care that you need and the time that you need it. So that's, that's the first issue. The second issue is the level of um, medical therapy that's available is sometimes a lot less. They don't have a lot of the therapeutic options that we have been using to deal with COVID-19, for example. Um, they don't have a lot of the uh, equipment to deal with COVID-19 in some cases as well. So it's, it's a resource issue, and it's also a logistics issue.
1: Hmm. And in terms of some of the genetics of how vaccines work as well, do they tend to be more or less effective in certain people groups? Do we have, I know we're only a year into this vaccine we're barely getting started in the vaccination process, but do we have any data about whether it's more or less effective on a given continent versus another at this point?
2: Um, yes and no. So we, we do have data in terms of is it more or less effective on a given continent based on the variants in circulation? South Africa is actually the best example. The Pfizer study, and excuse me, the Johnson and Johnson study in their particular um, South African arm that they looked at, ninety-five percent of those patients had the variant strain that we're concerned about at the moment, and so there was a reduction in activity. But as far as racial differences between uh, vaccines, there's not really been anything that's been shown yet.
1: Interesting. We have a text from a listener here, Zach. Too Becky is just asking the question: in terms of some of these messenger RNA vaccines, is there any data to suggest that having the vaccine may be immunosuppressive on some level into the future, related to maybe being able to resist the common cold or the flu or anything like that? Does it compromise our immune systems as well in other ways?
2: It really shouldn't compromise our immune system. The way that it's working is it's taking a piece of that that data and telling your cell to make this particular protein the virus makes. And that's exactly what a virus would be telling your cell. So it's, it's no different from that standpoint. Um, and as far as using it in populations that maybe already have uh, conditions that are immunocompromising or, or people that have autoimmune disorders, there is some data in those groups. And while there isn't a large proportion of those patients that have been studied in, in many of the trials, We haven't necessarily seen ill effects in those particular groups.
1: One more thought about all of this, Zach, because I do hear some of the headlines about some of the adverse reactions that might happen. But headlines, Mm -hmm. by their very nature, are almost always taking the outlying situations, not the common situations. And so what are we seeing in terms of adverse reactions? How concerned do people need to be related to, to
2: having a reaction like that if they get a vaccine? So the first thing I think I'll mention is, you know, it, it's really important to keep track of these adverse reactions. There's the uh, vaccine adverse event reporting system that we use here in the United States, and, and known as VAERS for short. Uh, the problem with VAERS is anyone can actually put anything in there. So if you go <laughs> yeah. and look, there are some vaccines that are listed as turning people into the Incredible Hulk. I'm actually not exaggerating. So, um, which, yeah, it's funny that that's still there, but it's a public database so people can put things in there. But we still pay attention to these things, and, and medical providers are reporting this information to the FDA. Um, as far as what we're seeing right now. A lot of concern was raised initially over whether or not this would cause a lot of anaphylaxis, and some of the early hmm. cases out of the UK, there, there was a big, big focus when they started with the, um, I think it was a Moderna vaccine over there. But what, what ended up happening is, as we've looked at this data, um, we haven't seen a huge incidence of this. Recently, Massachusetts General and Brigham and William Brigham and uh, Women's Hospital ended up doing a study on these vaccines and found that the incidence of anaphylaxis, anaphylaxis, which is that severe allergic reaction, is about 250 per 1 million people that receive a vaccine dose. Hmm. So Hmm. that's an incredibly small proportion. And the good news is, in the US, we haven't seen a single death from anaphylaxis related to these vaccines when it has happened, um, which again, has been pretty minimal. So it's a serious condition, but the incidence of it has been very, very minimal no deaths have resulted from it.
1: Hmm, Zach, as always, super helpful. I just appreciate the insight on a variety of issues, both ethically and practically related to COVID and the therapeutic interventions that we have. I hope you have a great rest of the morning.
2: All right, thanks so much. I hope you guys have a good day.
1: Yeah, we'll take a short break here uh, for some news and bottom of the hour news as well. And when we come back in the second half of hour one of Mornings Without Carmen, I'll be joined by Lee Camp. And we'll talk a little bit about his book, Scandalous Witness. Well, I don't know about you, Paul, but when Zach was describing a potential side effect of the vaccine as turning into the Incredible Hulk, that was much more motivating for me to get a vaccine versus less.
0: I don't know where to go with that one. I'm just a little scared. (laughs) If, you know, you you turn into Hulk, you lose your temper and it's, it's, you you don't want Peter angry. He won't like him when he's angry.
1: I have to say, I always—you know—I was a Spider-Man kid growing up, and I, I always was looking for that radioactive spider because I thought if you could sling some webs, crawl on some walls, I mean, that—that that is a future that you could embrace, right? At the end of the day, did you have an origin story, Paul, that you wanted to be a superhero? Uh,
0: yeah, more on the Superman side of things. I'm more—I was more DC as a kid. Of course, these days I'm more <laughs> Doctor Who. But anyway. You know.
1: I get it. Well, it was a great conversation with Zach, and I'm looking forward to the next one as well with Dr. Lee Camp. We're going to talk a little bit about his book, Scandalous Witness, and I'm going to ask Lee right up front, uh, should a Christian be a Republican or a Democrat? So I'm sure that won't be controversial at all. Not Stay with us for least. more here. Yes, indeed. I'm Mornings Without Carmen.
0: Mom, Dad, let me guess. If you have teens under your roof, I'll venture to say that conflict is a regular part of your home, right? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Whether it comes in the form of intense debate or even prolonged silence, there's no getting around the natural tension in any family. It's just a part of life. So every parent needs to decide ahead of time, how will you respond when things get messy? A good intentional plan will help you keep your cool and also help your kids learn to deal with inevitable conflicts that await them in the real world. You don't do your kids any favors by teaching them to run from disagreements. When you disengage from conflict, the greatest agent of change has just left the building.
3: There's more from Mark Gregston on Parenting Today's Teens website. Get helpful tips for moms and dads when you visit parentingtodaysteens.org.
1: It is about 22 minutes before the top of the hour here on the 15th of March. I'm Dr. Peter Kapser filling in for Carmen LeBurge this morning and delighted to be joined by Lee Camp, who is the author of Scandalous Witness, a little political manifesto for Christians. Lee teaches theology and ethics at Lipscomb University. Good morning, Lee.
3: Good morning, Peter. Pleasure to meet you.
1: So was there any, was it even close on the pronunciation of the university?
3: You know, you did pretty well for you, for you uh, Northerners.
1: (laughs) So, so, how how would you say it as a southerner? <laughs> I, I want to get my linguistic no, uh, pronunciation no, I mean, you're, you're correct
3: you're real, here. I mean, you're you're like right there on it, Lipscomb. Lipscomb University, that's right. Lipscomb.
1: Okay, good. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm glad I could succeed on I mean, on one, the lexicana level. Yes.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things that we southerners have learned is that anytime you begin, you open your mouth outside the South, it's like your IQ goes down ten points. And so we're <laughs> we're always aware that we've got to be aware of you know just acknowledging regional difference.
1: Oh, there I <laughs> appreciate your graciousness. I'm looking forward to this conversation too, Lee. I was very compelled by a book. It was actually on a friend's coffee table, and he was just uh, devouring this book and talking about how important it was for shaping his thinking related to the Christian engagement with the political realm. And uh, it sounds like for me, uh, Lee, that you have a, a relatively scandalous proposition in Scandalous Witness, and that is that Christians are neither left nor right, uh, that there's a different kind of way that we're supposed to act— Within the world,
3: yeah, yeah. So I use this phrase early in the book: neither right nor left nor religious. And I think all three of those parts are really important. And what I mean by that, at least in the context of this book, is on the one hand avoiding ideological partisanship of either side of the American political spectrum, and that you know, and, and I do, I try to do this in in a sense that's grounded deeply theologically. That is, that prior to the consummation of the kingdom of God, all systems and all structures inevitably inevitably, uh, fail to, including any church, you know, fails to meet the full consummate vision of the kingdom of God. And thus we have no need, nor should we, commit to some ideological partisanship of either right nor left. Now, one of the problems with that, of course, is that some people then kind of turn to some sort of pietistic or overly spiritualized view of participation in human history. And then they'll say things like, well, that stuff just doesn't matter. Politics doesn't matter. Social social policy doesn't matter. You know, God's got this and kind of pious notions that any of that kind of stuff going on doesn't matter. But it does matter because you know social policy impacts our neighbors. And social policy impacts the poor. And social policy impacts the marginalized. All of whom obviously are people Uh, that the gospel calls us to pay great attention to and to be servants to and to be present to.
1: Hmm. Lee, do you have a sense of maybe why we become so prone to want to align ourselves to a political party or a political ideology as a way of expressing our faith in this world? Is there something that is alluring or drawing about that kind of reality?
3: Well, I think there's at least two major possibilities in answering your question. One that's more laudable is that we know that our faith matters. Even though since the Enlightenment, we've been taught that faith is a privatized matter, is an individual affair. It's between me and God. Evangelicals have particularly been big on this, right? Um, Under the influence of individualism, we, we thought, well, our faith isn't political. And what I'm trying to argue is no, actually, if you read the gospel, it's it's political through and through in the sense that Jesus is talking about all the things that politics classically cares about, talks about marriage, he talks about how we relate to our enemies, he talks about how we deal with reconciliation, talks about how we deal with our money, all of these things are political questions. And so I make the kind of strong claim in the book that Christianity is political. But since we've tried to privatize it, we do then think, well, we we know these things matter, and so we're going to have to hitch our wagon to one political party in order to quote make a difference in the world. And so and the, people, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no,
1: no, go ahead. I would, I would love to hear the I was last part. Say, of-
3: so since we have this sort of desire that these things are important, we push one political party to try to push certain agendas through, and so there's a there's a sort of legitimate interest in that. The more kind of dangerous possibility here, and there's a lot of people writing on this right now. John Fea, for example, at Messiah College, I did an interview with him last week on his book, Believe Me. And he's arguing uh, that it's basically grounded in fear. And because we have this fear about not letting go of control of our culture, that we then do whatever we need to do. And consequently, because of that fear of the powers that be... Kind of co opt or use Christians to get them to vote for them when they don 't they 're not particularly interested in doing the things that they say they 're interested in with the christians the Roe Ro versus Wade is a classic example of this with the Supreme Court it hasn 't been overturned even though you 've had Republican appointee majority on the Supreme Court for for fifty of the last fifty one years and they they simply aren 't doing what they've said that they 're going to do.
1: It's a pretty profound point that you're making, Lee, the idea that some of the political parties are going to be using Christians and Christian ideology maybe to gain votes and gain power and it, and I think it's a it's a fair assessment of how things have worked globally typically for for Christians as well and I'm curious I had a comment when I was living overseas and and then spent some time overseas in Scotland with a young pastor friend of mine and this was pre-covid we were sitting out over coffee and and he was reflecting on the nature of politics in the United States from his perspective in Europe in which the church Church no longer had any real political power. And he, he made this statement that where he grew up in Ireland, they went from people of the book to sort of just people of a secularized country within even one generation. And now to hmm. your point, there, I think there was a lot of fear that was going on where Christians were losing a lot of the social and political power that they were used to having. And then he made this statement, Leah, and I would love to have you reflect on this. He said, you know, you in America have already lost the cultural battle as Christians in terms of Christians being in social power. You just don't know it yet. Demographically, everything has changed. Secularization has changed things. And then he said this, but you're clinging to politics as your last hope to retain social power. And he basically said, there's an entirely different invitation for Christians to walk in, where the, the power of the kingdom is not diminished, but the expression of that power may not be through the political lens. Yeah,
3: you know, I, my reaction to that is, on the one hand, um, I think, yeah, I think that that's, there's something true about that, uh, that definitely the, the, the swings, such significant cultural swings have undoubtedly occurred in the United States over the last 20, 30, 40 years, for sure. And then some people are holding on gas, you know, last gasp uh, and so forth. At the same time, I would say, look, we have a we have a Catholic as president of the United States, <laughs> you know, <laughs> indeed, and did yeah. and did. And, yeah. And, and the president before him uh, uh, was, was n- not so obviously Christian in any sense. But the president before him was a devoted, baptized Christian. And so it's you know, we do have Christians very much involved. But we have a very narrow vision of how Christians, some people have a very narrow Christian of how Christians may be involved in uh, socio-political affairs of the United States.
1: Uh, one more part of this, too, Lee, going back to something that you said, that we are still involved in the world. This is not a, a private religion to speak of. I'm, I'm very compelled that when Jesus stands in front of the Sanhedrin in those last couple of days before his death and they asked him about being a king and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And yet Paul later says we're ambassadors of that kingdom, right? Like we, we live right. the ways of life of his kingdom. And when you think about an ambassador, there's somebody who's simply living in a foreign country representing the ways of the kingdom. That's part of what we're talking about here, I assume.
3: That's exactly right. I mean, you know, remember the the next phrase that Jesus uses there before Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And he says, if my kingdom were of this world, then my disciples would fight. And hmm. what what you have in Jesus is a kingdom that doesn't mean that it's removed from our daily experience, that it's removed from human history. Instead, human history is the very stage upon which the drama of the kingdom of God is being played out. But to say it's not of the world there Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is brought about in a way that the kingdoms of this world are not brought about there's a there's a different way of these two kingdoms, and so the the nonviolent love of christ uh, the the way of seeking to yield the power of God through suffering love in the world, this is the what the kingdom of God is about, and so if we embrace this sort of uh, suffering love of Christ, all of a sudden we can have things to offer to the world that we couldn't offer otherwise. We, we have lots to offer to the left and we have lots of, to offer to the right uh, if we will simply learn that we don't have to be ideologically committed to partisanship on one end or the other
1: incredibly helpful, Lee. We're going to take a short break. We're talking with Lee Camp here, who is the author of Scandalous Witness, and if you're listening this morning, this is one book that I can unreservedly recommend in terms of understanding a pathway forward as Christians in our country to maybe reestablish who we're meant to be in our very identity as citizens of a different kind of kingdom working within the kingdoms of this world. And Lee, when we come back, I want to at least uh, address this tokens show that you do in Tennessee related to a theological variety show, and then we'll go back to your book for some more. So stay Stay with us for more to come here on Mornings Without Carmen. Welcome back to the show. We're chatting with Lee Camp about his book, Scandalous Witness. And before we go back to some of the topics in the book, Lee, I would love to just take a little sidetrack here to this uh, interesting theological variety show that you do called The Tokens. Tell us about it.
3: Yeah, a token show uh, is, uh, as you say, a theological variety show, which sounds awful on paper.
1: <laughs> it doesn't sound wind interesting at all, Lee, no, but it no. is it is all of those <laughs> things, indeed.
3: It is. It's really a wonderful exper- experiment. It's, we've been doing it for more than a decade now in Nashville. And by the end of our second year, I suppose, third year, we started doing a, our, our year-end show at the big uh, historic Ryman Auditorium downtown in Nashville, where the Opry was for many, many years. And um, and then actually the end of last year, we got picked up by Nashville Public Radio, and uh, we've been really pleased that Nashville Public Radio will let us do theology on public radio. It's been a wonderful experiment.
1: That's incredible. And how many years did you say
3: you've been doing this? Uh, Twelve, thirteen years now or so.
1: Yeah, and you have quite a bit of different kinds of backgrounds coming into this uh, from people from Harvard and Yale to entertainers. I mean, this is really, truly a, a, an old school variety show.
3: Yeah, I mean, we have... Uh, literally one of the best house bands in Nashville, which makes it one of the best in the country, and we have all sorts of Grammy Award winners come in and do vocals, uh, performances, and really high-end academics, and uh, it's, it's been a wonderful experiment. If anybody wants to check us out, they can go to tokensshow.com, and we also have a podcast that uh, comes out uh, weekly as well, and so we'd love for folks to join us online uh, in that experiment.
1: Yeah, I assume it's a virtual event this year, right? It's not something that's going to be held in person?
3: That's correct. Yeah. Well, we're hoping to start maybe doing a little bit of stuff in person in the middle of the year, uh, depending okay. upon how things unfold.
1: Okay, that's great. Well, getting back to your book, Scandalous Witness, uh, I would be curious your thoughts related to how idolatry fits into this picture of Christians just trying to navigate the world and the political spheres of the world, trying to be people of a kingdom outside of this world, but within the world. Where, where does idolatry and idols fit into this picture, Lee? Yeah.
3: Well, you know, you don't you don't have necessarily have to talk about golden statues to talk about this sort of uh, idolatry. I mean, I think yeah. that what have, what we have here in America is um, that nationalism itself, which is not is not. Patriotism right patriotism is, is love of community and love of love of country, whereas nationalism is a move that puts that on steroids into a sort of idolatrous position that is to see one 's nation as exceptional to see one 's nation as the hope even of the world and This is a long standing American practice if you go back to Thomas Jefferson, for example, he called the United States, the last great hope of the earth. Or you go to Abraham Lincoln. He says, he was talking about during the Civil War that the Union was the last great hope of earth. You can look at Woodrow Wilson, who said incredibly unbelievable things about the United States of America. And there's a speech he does. He, did, he used that language repeatedly in his presidency. And after his presidency, there's a speech where he says, he's talking about uh, America going out during World War I and says, at last America sees, at last the world sees America as the savior of the world, end quote. Over and over and over again, you see this in Madeleine Albright, you know, and it's, it's a nonpartisan thing. You see it in Madeleine Albright, you see it in Donald Trump. Left and right will use this language of saying that America's the hope of the world. And so there's this sort of uh, kind of in your face uh, assumption about American exceptionalism that I think Christians ought to be really, really concerned about.
1: Well, I mean, this might sound too basic or too mundane, but I often think about the fact that if you're watching a football game on a Sunday afternoon, and let's say it's in our neck of the woods, it's the Packers and the Vikings, you probably have people on both sides saying that God is actually on their side. And, and it's manifested on when a football team has success. Well, we're blessed, or God must be for us. But right. that that basic idea, I think, translates into nation states, does it not? In terms of most countries, I would suggest, think on some level, that God is on their side. And maybe we're missing the point altogether.
3: The, exactly right. I mean, you know, Bob Dylan's famous song, With God on Our Side, is this indicting, terribly biting, indicting uh, ballad about our country. And he goes after through war after war after war and reminds us how everybody thinks God's on their side, right? And everybody thinks God's on their side precisely often when they're killing the people on the other side, who also think mm-hmm. God is on their side trying to kill, kill the other side back. And so instead, to get at the heart of what it looks like to have something like a Christian politic, we have to grapple with the most challenging, truly alternative parts of the gospel of what does it look like to be people in the world who are a a cruciform people, who are in the world to serve the world through the way of Christ, which then is going to challenge right and left and always requires to be deeply firmly grounded in the life of the world.
1: Boy, and Leah, you used a phrase in our first segment about the idea of suffering love, and now you're talking about the cruciform people as well, and is it possible that one of the ways in which we maybe need to change our mindset for how we are in the world is to not adopt sort of the idea of prosperity as evidence of God's blessing? And in fact, maybe we're never walking in a more blessed kind of state than when we're suffering, when, when we are walking in love on behalf of other people that they may be whole, even though we ourselves might be suffering. I, I think that's the very point of the cross that we're about ready to celebrate in the next two weeks.
3: Yes, I, th- I think that's right. I think, uh, of course, there's always a important that we don't romanticize suffering, and I didn't hear you doing that, but uh, we don't want to romanticize it, but to see always that in the New Testament, that to embody the love of God in the world always carries with it the possibility that it will be rejected. And Mm. the radical freedom that God gives all, all human creation is we're also called to give that radical freedom to others, that is to be rejected. And in that rejection, it sometimes will come with a less cost and sometimes with a more cost, and it could be, the more cost could be the suffering of which you're speaking there.
1: Hmm. Well, Lee, this is uh, so entirely helpful. Again, the book is Scandalous Witness. And uh, tell us one more time about the token show that's coming out and how people can get tickets if they want to view the scintillating theological variety yeah. show.
3: Yes. Yeah, you can find out all manner of things about The Token Show, more than even you might ever want. But uh, we'd love to have you join us on the podcast or on the public radio episodes at tokenshow.com
1: Love it, Lee. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, taking the time for your book, and uh, just to help us understand what it means to be ambassadors of a different kind of kingdom.
3: Thank you, Peter. Pleasure to be with you.
1: Yeah, we'll take a short break and wrap up this first hour of the show and preview what's coming up next in Hour 2 here on Mornings Without Carmen. You know, Paul, uh, on this show, you have a lot of authors and a lot of books, and all of them are worthwhile, worth reading. And uh, this one in particular, I think, really hits the heart of where people are living today, trying to navigate as believers what it means to be in this world, even if we are sort of losing a sense of political power as a vehicle, as a mechanism by which to express our faith.
0: You know, actually, one of the things he was talking about that kind of slapped me in the face was the idea when he's talking about fear. And, you know, fear isn't it sense a form of worship because you're fo- so focused on you're you're so invested in it and that's a scary thought but i don't know i, it, I it's my thought but there you go
1: Yeah, no, it is a very, it was a very helpful point of view that he brought to the table. Again, the book Scandalous Witness would be something worth reading. We're going to take a break here for some top of the hour news. When we come back in hour two, we'll be joined by Dr. Linda Mintel. And we will wonder about how sensitive we are or are not. And we can uh, often figure that out by whether we cry at movies. So stay with us for hour two on Mornings Without Carmen.
0: Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio.